0: continue in our series this morning, More and Better. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 19, uh, verses 11 through 27. That's Luke chapter 19, verse 11 through 27. I do realize those are a lot of verses, and some of you are going to do more reading in your Bible today than you'll do in a lifetime. So strap in and get ready title of message today is, God's Opportunities Are Our Responsibilities With His Accountability. God's Opportunities Are Our Responsibilities With His Accountability. Last week, I gave the big picture of God's big story. We talked a little bit about creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And all four of these categories are useful for breaking down the Bible, You can break the Bible down in those four categories. And as I said last week, we are currently in between redemption and ultimate restoration. When Jesus came and died on the cross and rose again from the dead, he redeemed us. And now his church is on mission to reconcile the world to God. And as God reconciles us, we are being restored. Therefore, we the church say, come Lord Jesus, come. If you are a believer in Christ this morning, there should be a longing in your soul for the return of Jesus. When you think of all the heartache and all the mess and all the turmoil and all the God-belittling experiences, your soul can't help but say, come, Lord Jesus, come. And how about the daily frustration of our own affection towards our Lord and Savior. One day we're ready to take the city for him, and then the next moment we wonder if he's even near us, how fickle our hearts are. And so we eagerly await a Savior from heaven. I love the way that Paul puts it in Philippians. He says, says, but our citizenship is in heaven, And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you know your Bibles well enough, you know that we are not the only ones longing and waiting for Jesus' return. The Bible even says creation. That's the birds and the trees and all of that is longing for the return of our Savior. Uh, Paul puts it this way in, in Romans. He says, for the creation waits with eager longing. For the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 21. Now you know the world is bad when the trees and the ants are saying, Jesus, will you come back? Hurry up. However, the Bible is clear on where this thing is going. It is going towards a restored heaven and earth with Jesus as our ultimate king. We all know life is short in this room if we were to be honest. We feel it every single day. But often we crowd this feeling of of this short life out with devices and amusement and entertainment and Comcast and AT&T and cell phones. We spend so much money on all of these things to kind of numb the pain of the reality that we feel on a day-to-day basis. Trevin Wax in, uh, in This Is Our Time relates how Andy Crotch, a former senior editor at Christianity Today, recently spent several weeks away from all screens. Not just the phone, but the laptop, the tablet, the email, and the TV. All digital companions on our journey through life. He kept his phone for the ability to message his family and friends. But compared to my normal life, he says, in which a rectangle rectangle is glowing in front of me seven to nine hours a day, it was a dramatic and initially disorienting change. You might expect Andy's description of this time away from screens to focus on what he missed about all the things he gave up. Instead, Andy's recollections are about everything he gained during that season. He worked on his piano skills for the first time in 20 years. He exercised more and read great books. He finished some projects around the house. But the biggest blessing of this season was a small measure of attention, which Andy describes this way, an ability to calm the noise and to read and to cry over a story, to listen with friends to one short passage of scripture and read it over and over again, four times with long silence in between, and the prerequisite for for that kind of attention, though though I would not want to exaggerate how much I managed to attain it, was a sense of my own smallness. You see, church, as we wait on a Savior, we must be wise with what we do with our life. We must be wise with what we do with our life. Does Jesus care about what you do with your life? Does how you live your life convey how you feel about Jesus? How would Jesus deal with those who have wasted their life and spent their lives all on themselves? Or how will he treat those who are on mission, being little tugboats, as we said last week, uh, out in this world and giving their lives for him to make more and better disciples? I think we ought to allow Jesus to answer those questions this morning. How does Jesus feel about how we steward our life. Today we are going to be in Luke chapter 19 and we are dealing with one of Jesus' parables again. And today we are going to be looking at a parable that Jesus gives. I believe this parable captures how Jesus feels about what we do with our lives here. Now, this will not be our first time as a church body going through a parable. But for the sake of those who were not with us upon last time, I want to explain to you what a parable is. A parable is a practical story, often framed as a simile, a comparison using like or as. So, if I wanted to convey to you how I sound when I sing, I would say I sound like Fred Hammond. And through that, you get the picture of what I sound like. I'm not Fred Hammond, but I I sound like him. And perhaps you're thinking. (laughs) Perhaps you're thinking. Why are you not on the choir? Well, that makes two of us then. Because I've been wondering myself. And if you figure it out, please let me know. But really, these parables are used to illustrate spiritual truth. Jesus, desiring to convey spiritual truth, which was new and unfamiliar, chose analogies and illustrations and stories that were familiar from which to begin his teaching. In fact, he drew his stories from everyday life, from customs, traditions, social enterprise, from farming, even from history and events that were familiar to the people, both current and past. In our parable today, Jesus is playing on an actual historical event to convey spiritual truth. And so this parable that Jesus is giving, the people that he is speaking to, they would be able to connect the dots in what Jesus is saying with something familiar that that he's using within the parable. So let's go to Luke chapter 19, verse 11 through 27 and see what Jesus has to say to us this morning. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a noble man went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. And when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they have gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I condemn you with your own words. You wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, Bring them here and slaughter them before me. What a way to end a parable, right? Now, here in this parable, as I said, is a historical event. I'm going to challenge you. I thought about just giving it to you, but I want to challenge you throughout the week to go and do your own homework and research on what historical event Jesus is building this parable off of. And I'll be asking on next week, did you look it up? Did you find out what it was? But for this morning, what is the point of this parable? What is the point of this parable? Why did Jesus tell it? If you're going to appreciate what he is saying, you cannot skip verse 11. Verse 11, he says, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. This is insightful and critically important to understand the purpose of this parable. Notice the repetition of the word because. Luke help explains the parable by telling why Jesus told it in the first place. He was near to the capital city, Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the darling city for the Israelites. They loved the city of Jerusalem. Jesus is coming up from Jericho a few chapters earlier, and he just healed a blind man on the side of the road. The blind man cried out, son of David, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus has a crowd of people following him, and Jesus hears his voice, and Jesus pauses and gives a Jesus will pause if you call his name, and he will give you attention if you will call his name in faith. Jesus pauses in the middle of his busyness to give attention to a blind man. And so he goes up to the blind man, and he heals him. Shortly after he heals the blind man, Jesus is still making his way up to Jerusalem, and he sees a little old man up in the tree. He climbed the sycamore tree because he couldn't see Jesus, and Jesus pays attention to little Zacchaeus, and what happens to Zacchaeus that day? Jesus saves little old Zacchaeus, and he saves his soul, and what does Zacchaeus say? He says, everything that I have, everything that I've done wrong, I want to make right. Salvation has a way of changing your heart and giving Giving you new perspective. Amen, 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 amen. So here it is, Jesus making his way from Jericho and pressing towards Jerusalem. And as he's going, the crowd is getting bigger and bigger and bigger as he made his way to the capital city. This is the second reason they suppose that the kingdom of God would appear immediately. But why is this a problem? That they are so fixed on when the kingdom is coming. Every once in a while, someone even in our culture comes up with a theory that Jesus is about to return. Uh, Sometimes they try to base this on a bloody moon coming or or all kinds of things. There's all kind of crazy people out here talking about they know when Jesus is coming back. And I'm still trying to figure that out because Jesus clearly said no one knows when I'm coming back. So I'm like, I don't know why you all keep believing them. But anyways, they they claim that they know when Jesus is coming back. What is important is what you do with your life until he comes back. It is not important when he's coming back. He's coming back. What is important is what you do with your life until he comes back. Jesus tells this parable to correct their understanding of the future and their responsibility in the interim time while he's gone. Jesus wasn't excited about a crowd following him. Jesus didn't care about that. It didn't move him. A lot of us, we get moved when people show us attention and follow But Jesus, he wasn't moved by that. He didn't care if he had a million Facebook followers. It did, did, didn't move him at all, right? He didn't care. He said, listen, you're following me, and let me tell you what matters. What matters is what you do with your life while I am gone. I want to pull three key things out of this parable for your consideration and meditation. Opportunity responsibility and accountability let's start with opportunity God's gift in provision now Jesus has a really large crowd let's make sure that we got the picture of what's going on here in the passage there's a large crowd following him and just because you're following Jesus doesn't mean that you're following Jesus just because you're following Jesus does not mean that you're following Jesus In this large crowd of followers were a variety of people. You had had the apostles. Some were interested. Some were declaring themselves followers of his. It was yet to be seen if these people were real disciples of Jesus Christ. We pick up in verse 12. Drop your eyes down at verse 12. Verse 12 says, a noble man went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then returned. Now, this word noble here basically means someone of high birth. Well, Jesus is the son of God, and he was born of a virgin. So if anyone has a high birth, it is Jesus. Now, this noble man is about to go off to a far country. He's going off to a far country to receive the kingdom which he has left. So he's getting ready to go off. And in verse 13, it says, before he left, he did something, calling ten of his servants. He gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. What is a mina? A mina was equal to about 100 days wages or three months salary for a labor worker. So Jesus says, listen, I'm going away. But before I go, I'm going to give you something. I'm going to deposit something. I'm going to entrust you with something. I'm going to leave a deposit with each Of you, and therefore be wise with your life while I'm gone. Take what I've given you and now do something with it. I want you to note here that God will never send you on mission without supplying everything that you need. The thing that I love about this is that God is always the supplier, He is always the giver, He gives us everything that we need. Do you remember Abraham when he told Abraham to go on uh, up to the top of the mountain and to sacrifice Isaac? What happens when he's getting ready to kill Isaac? God said, wait a minute, you don't need to provide a sacrifice. I have one right there. Abraham met Jehovah Jireh. God is my provider. God is a provider. He is a giver. Now note that the king gave each of them the same amount. Jesus also gives every Christian everything they need, everything that you need for that which God has called you to, he has given to you. Listen, God has given you everything you need, and you are to steward what he has given you well. Oh, what would happen if we understood that everything that we have belongs to God. Everything that I possess belongs to God. There is not one thing that you have that God Almighty does not own. And isn't this the antidote for greed and selfishness, that if we understood that God is our supplier and everything that we have, he has given to us, how would we be? What would be the attitude of our hearts? We would hold everything that we have before God with an open hand and say, Lord, do what you will with what I have. Do what you will. Everything that you've given me, God, take it and do what you will freely. We will give unto the Lord. When we begin to realize who our supplier is, it frees us from worrying about what we don't have and what we need. God got this, church. He will provide everything that we need. Now, when you entrust someone with something, you are expecting them to do the right thing with it, right? Jesus now gives them 10 minas and he's getting ready to leave and he says, I'm entrusting you with this. And when you entrust someone with something, you're expecting them to do right by. You are expecting them to take care of the valuables you gave them. Every follower of Christ is the steward what God has given them wisely. God has given us so much, including the gospel. We have been learning about And if you've been paying attention in our Solar Series, you know how precious this gospel is. The gospel that saves us. The gospel that changes us. The gospel that redeems us. God has given us the gospel of his son to take into this dying world so that people may come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. No believer has more gospel than the other. All right. No believer has a different gospel. All right. We all have the same gospel. God right. has given us all the same gospel. And Paul puts it this way in Timothy. He says, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Paul sees the gospel as something that is to be stewarded. He doesn't just see it as something that has been preached to him, but he sees it as something that he possesses and something that he is to steward well. Look at verse 13 again. He says, He says not not only does he give them everything that they need, but the nobleman also gives them a command. In verse 13, it says what? Engage in business until I come. Engage in business until I come. So Jesus is saying to all of us in the room, while you have breath in your body, while you are on this earth, Get to work for me. Don't be standing around waiting on a bloody moon. Don't be standing around waiting on a magazine to come out. Get to work. Do my work while, I, while, while I'm gone. He didn't call them to relax. He didn't call them to chill. He didn't say take it easy. He didn't say go take a vacation. He, he didn't say any of that. He says engage in business until I come. I wish I had five or ten people that were engaging in the Lord's business until he came. Because of commandments like these in the Bible, this is why the church ought to be on mission. Mission to make more and better disciples. Not in the walls of this building, but doing the work of Christ. It has called us to. The church is to give the world a picture of what Jesus is like while he's gone. The church is to be a picture of what Jesus is like. The world ought to be able to touch and to see tangibly what Jesus is like through the body. We ought to freely use our time and our talent and our treasure and our testimony to achieve the goal of the king. Everything that God has given you ought to be working towards his goal and his end, not your goal and your end. Oftentimes we take our treasure and our talent and everything that God has given us and we use it to build our own platform, to build our own name. But God hasn't given you any of that for yourself. Let's go back to the picture here. Here it is. The noble man is getting ready to leave and go to a far country. He calls 10 of his servants to himself. He gives them each amina, and he tells them to engage in business. That's the command is to go out and to do business until I return. I'm going to go possess a kingdom, and when I come back, I'm going to require you to show me what you've done with what I've given you. Now, let's just slow down for a minute. Can you imagine? standing there, the king of the universe, gives you a charge, gives you a command, gives you something, entrusts you with something. And he says, I'm going to come back and I want to know what you did with that. I couldn't imagine the fear or how scary that is, how intimidating that is for God Almighty to say, I'm entrusting you with something. I know I've experienced this last month when Pastor Steve installed me as the pastor last month, and you want to know how I felt? I felt scared. I'm like, God, you want me to lead a church? You want little old Dexter and all of his flaws and shortcomings and inadequacies to to lead a people. You want me to do that? Yes, I want you to do that. I, the higher shepherd, is hiring you, the lower shepherd, to shepherd and to feed my sheep, and you're going to give an account for what you've done with them. That's why we leaders ought to take this job seriously, to take this role seriously, not pimping the church, not using them for our own gain, but pointing them to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There Jesus is talking to a multitude of people who are wondering when his kingdom is going to come. Not only does he say, go engage in business, verse 14 is what knocks me off of my heels. It says in verse 14, drop your eyes down there, but but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. There's two things here from Jesus that we need to see. Number one, you are going to have to do business among people who do not like Jesus. How many people know that we live in a world that does not like Jesus? It's not like they're just waiting on, come on, bring Jesus to us. The world hates Jesus. In other words, doing business for me will not be easy. Living for Jesus will not be easy. A lot of times we get this cute Christianity, right? Come to Jesus, all your problems will go away. You'll have all the food you need, have all the money, you have all the friends you want. No, that's not what Jesus said. One of the things I love about Jesus is that Jesus keeps it 100 all the time. He's a straight shooter. He's like, listen you going to come follow me? There's going to be persecution. I'm going to lead you into persecution. I'm going to lead you into suffering. I'm going to lead you into heartache. But at the end of the day, I'm worth following. Still want to follow Jesus? He says that you're going to go do business among people who do not like me. Just a few verses earlier, Jesus had said to them, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, and I'm so thankful that he did. The second thing we find we need to take out of this statement um, in verse 14 is Jesus helps us to see in this statement is just it's just this that his citi- the, he said he says this. My citizens, his citizens hated him. Now, don't let that pass you by. His citizens hated him. Everybody belongs to him in the kingdom. You may reject Christ, you may hate Christ, but he owns you. He is sovereign over you. You may be an atheist, you may be a Muslim, you may be a Buddhist, yet Christ owns you. You live in this country, he made this world, it is his. He made you, and by creation he owns you. I love the way John MacArthur puts it. I think this is a message that people don't quite understand. They think that if they reject Christ, then Christ has nothing to do with them. You reject Christ, and he has everything to do with you. You accept Christ, and he has everything to do with you. You do nothing with Christ, and he has everything to do with you. You are in his world. You live in his country over which he is sovereign, over which he has full authority. Every knee will bow and and confess that Jesus is Lord. You can reject him. You can ignore him. But he owns you at the end of the day. Doesn't matter. Just because you throw your hand up to God and say, "Uh uh-uh, I want nothing to do with you, does not matter. He still owns you. So Jesus has given his servants a command, and he's given them the opportunity to work for him. Jesus has given them an opportunity to make more and better disciples with the gospel, and with everything else he has given them. Next thing, not only do we have opportunity, with opportunity comes responsibility. With opportunity comes responsibility. Now, let me clearly define responsibility. Because we seem not to understand that in this culture. Mm. Guys have babies and walk away from them. Mm. People go to work and expect not to work. Mm. People borrow money and don't want to give it back. And I ain't taking shots at nobody just in case (laughs) y'all think somebody owed me money and I'm trying to get at them. (laughs) Responsibility is a thing that one is required to do as part of a job, a role, or legal obligation. So if you're the father, you are required to take care of the baby. If you're on the clock, you are required to do the work. If Jesus is your Lord, then you are required to make disciples. It is a divine obligation. As I said last week, Jesus is not cutely asking us, will you please make disciples for me? No, he's commanding the church to go and make disciples. It's the very mission that we are to be on. Now, if you do or don't do what is required of you, either way, you will be held responsible And the outcome will determine the consequence. This is exactly what happens in the parable. The nobleman goes away. He returns, not as a nobleman, but as a king and orders each of his servants to give an account for the minas he had given them. Look at verse 15. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Okay, so Jesus is talking future to us now, all right? Now, we're in the parable where, where, where Jesus is giving a picture of his return. The noble man leaves, right? What happens in the gospel? Jesus dies on the cross for our sins. He rises from the dead. He's seated at the right hand of God, and he, and he will return one day. And Jesus is giving us a picture of what's going to happen when he comes back. So if you ever wonder what's going to happen when God's return, he's coming to judge everyone, and he's starting with the church. He's starting with his servants. And I say that to say you better be careful what you do with God's stuff. Everything you have, you don't really own. They all belong to him. And it is a matter of time before the king returns, And you have to give an account for the money, the cars, the children, the education, and even the struggle he entrusted you with. You will give an account for every single thing that God has given unto you. He is going to call you to account, and we ought to tremble because of it. Drop your eyes down to verse 16. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have the authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas, and said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Let's talk about accountability here. Here we see a dramatic turn of events and fortunes. The first servant had turned the one mina to ten minas. That is a thousand percent return on investment. How many people want that brother managing your money? You brought me a thousand percent back. At that rate, you can catch up with Disney, Amazon, Facebook, Microsoft. That's the kind of brother I want management my money. I don't know about you, but if you can get me a thousand percent back, I'll take it. It doesn't say how he did it, though, or what lines of business he engaged in. It simply says the return on investment. And the king's response, well done, good servant. What was good about what he did? He used the time while the nobleman was gone to work hard, to invest wisely, and increase the value for the king. What did he do right? He took the time that God had given him, and he used it wisely to work for the Lord. You see, church, this is how we should live. God, all that God has given you, you ought to lay it at his feet and say, God, while I'm on this earth, while I have breath in my body, I want to give not 10% of Dexter. I don't want to give 5%. I don't want to give 50%. I don't want to give 75%. I want to give my entire life to your calling, to your kingdom, to your work. I want to give everything. And this is what this first servant did. He gave everything. He went at it with everything for the glory of Christ everything for his king. I'm a servant. He had the right attitude. He had the right perspective. And even God, if you choose this life for suffering for your sake, help me to be like Job. Don't you slay me, yet shall I praise you. God, if you want to take my life And use it for suffering. If you want to use it for the sake of the gospel, whatever it is that you want to do with Dexter Harris, I give it all to you. And though you slay me, yet still I praise you. The real test is not, the real test is not can you hold on to your faith until he gives you what you want. The real test is do you trust him and believe him, even if he doesn't give you the outcome that you're looking for? Do you still trust him? Is he still enough? Is he still more? Because God will take things away from you. Naked I came into this world, and naked I'll leave. But it doesn't matter, because all that I have is his. Though he slay me, yet shall I praise him. You made me ten minas. I'll give you 10 cities to rule and govern. How much is 10 cities worth? He gave him 10 cities. God said, because you are faithful, because you surrender all that you had from me, I'm going to shower a blessing on you. You can't stand. You can give, but you can't outgive God. No one in the universe can outgive God because He owns everything. You give to God, God will not let you show him up. Amen. He will not let you show him up. God will outgive you in the end, Amen. period. And if he hasn't already outgiven Amen. you by giving you the greatest gift that he can give you, which is his son, Jesus Amen. Christ, which is why Romans says if he did not spare his own son, how will he not also with him give us all things? If God has given us Christ, that ought to be the motivation for us to give everything to God because God loves us. In his son, Jesus Christ, Paul says this, for this light momentary affliction, 1 Corinthians 4, 17, he says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I don't care what you're going through. If you do it in the name of Jesus, God got something for you that's going to make your suffering in, in, in eternity look like nothing you're going to say, what trouble? What, what suffering? Yeah. By the time God gets done, eyes have not seen and ears have not heard. Why did God do this for this servant? Because he was faithful with what God gave him. Servant number two, the second follows the pattern, only this guy made 500% return he got five cities. Again, what he made and what he got seems out of proportion, but such is the generosity of the king. And although the other guy made half of what the other guy made, Jesus was still generous unto him because he got in the field and he worked and he did the work of his master to the best of his ability, and he was blessed as well. Let's look at servant three. So we come to the third guy. And if I was the third guy and I was in line and i just seen servant one and two get such great blessings. I would have been rubbing my hands together and say, this is going to be a beautiful day. Uh, God has been so generous to them. I I wonder what he has in store for me. And so let's look at verse 20 uh, as he steps up to the king. And then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because... You are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And here's the power of the parable. The king has expectations for his servants. Strong and severe expectations. This final servant discovers this as he very unwisely took the mina and hid it in a handkerchief. This servant thought, I'll just play it safe. Yeah. I'll just take it easy. Yeah. Nothing always seems safe. The do-nothing approach never risks anything. Maybe that's you today. Many of us don't want to be this guy, but as we look at our lives, it is the very thing that we're doing. We're sitting on the sideline. We're, 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 we're hoarding our time. We're hoarding our resources. We're stingy with all that God has given us. And so the question you must ask yourself, when you look at your life, does it say you serve Jesus or does it say you serve you? And it's easy to find out who you're serving this morning. Oh, it is easy. Just follow the trail of your time and your affections and your energy and your money and your allegiance. And at the end of that trail, you'll find a throne. And whatever or whoever is on that throne is what's the highest value to you. And on that throne is your king. You want to know what you're worshiping this morning, church? You want to know what you're living for? Follow your money. Follow your time. Follow your resources. And where do they lead you to? And whoever's on that throne, that's who you are. You say you worship Jesus all you want. What does your life say? Your mouth can say one thing, and your life can say a totally different thing. You better get them in line before the king returns. But the king evaluation is based on the potential earning power of the mina. He points out even a no-brainer approach would at least get interest value added to the bank the Jews were not allowed to charge interest to their fellow Jews by the Old Testament law but they could charge charge to the gentiles and Jesus is saying at least you could at least try you could at least got out there you could at least did something for me but you did absolutely nothing you wicked servant take what he has so right now the man is thinking Well, at least I get one city. He thought wrong. In verse 24, he says, and he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. Verse 25, and they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that everyone who has more will be given, but the one who has not even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not. Want me to reign over them? Bring them here and slaughter them before me. The parable takes a dark turn in the end. The servant who did nothing not only loses the reward of a city, he loses demeanor as well. Why? He has shown himself to be unfaithful and unreliable. The king is about results. If you had three months wages and you could give it to any one of those servants, which one are you going to give it to? I don't know about you. But math is not hard. I'm giving it to the one who got 1,000%. That's just, that's just basic math. And the thing I like about math is that it is the most emotionless language there is. Math don't care about your feelings. Two plus two is four. It's, nothing to go, it's no biases. This is what it is. Three plus three is six. Hey, if you get a 1,000%, I'm going to give it to him because he's faithful and he is responsible. But those who have not because of unfaithfulness, even what they have will be taken away. And what about those who did not want him to be king? What did he say? Bring those unbelievers here and slay them. That's some hard language from Jesus. We're used to the cute Jesus, come to me, right? All who are heavy laden and burdened. But Jesus is going to come back with fire in his eyes, with a sword, and he's bringing judgment on this world. And all those who have not believed in him will suffer eternal damnation. Should we rejoice in that church? Absolutely not. Because it could have been us apart from the grace of God. If God didn't save you from what was coming your way. So let's look at this parable. The easy question is who is the king in the story? It's Jesus. Who are the servants? The disciples. Somebody said, Jesus, you are wrong. Um, it's Jesus, and the servants is the disciples. Uh, What is the mina? It's everything that God has given us. The king is Jesus. The servants are the disciples. And let's now connect this to the gospel. The noble man does what? He leaves. He goes off to do what? To get authority for the country that he left, that people there did not like him. What did Jesus do? Jesus died. He went away. He's coming back. Who has given Jesus all authority? The Father in heaven has given Jesus all authority, right? That's why he says in Matthew 28, all authority has been given unto me. And then he says that I will return. And what is he going to do when he returns? He's going to judge the living and the dead. In fact, in the Bible, he says that he is ready to judge the living and the dead. And what will he do in his judgment? He will either reward you or he will punish you. Steward everything is the main point of the parable. Each disciple is responsible to steward everything God has given him. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Everything that we have has come from God, and he will call us into account. So as we think about more and better, as we think about making disciples for God, what should the attitude of our hearts be? What should be the inclination of our lives? I think it should be like the goalie soccer, the the goalie in soccer, Here's an article I read about a soccer, go- soccer goalies. The penalty error, sometimes called the penalty box or just the box, is an 18-yard X, 18-yard area marked off with a thick white chalk line right, right by each goal on the soccer field. Most goalies call it the goalie box or just my box for short. That may sound arrogant, but in a way, it is their box. Within that box, they have an amazing privilege and superpower that no other soccer player has. A goalie can use his hands, but the goalie also has an all, an awesome responsibility to protect the goal for his entire team. He is the last line of defense. Good goalies have a certain attitude about their box. When they talk about the goalie box, they, they, they say things like, this is my box. No, this is my house. I'll take care of business in my house. It's not arrogant. It's a recognition that as a goalie, they have special superpowers and special responsibilities in this box, this area, this zone. Now, not everyone has to like soccer. And not everyone that likes soccer has to be a goalie. But let me put it this way. Every follower of Jesus has a box. They have a zone where God has placed you for a special purpose with a special calling. It is the place where you have influence. It is partially based on where you live and work, but it also includes the network of relationships and opportunities that you have to love people, to serve people, to share the gospel with people. Bethel, Gary, it is time for us to take back what the devil has stolen. Take back our children. Take back our schools. Take back our homes. It is time for us to stand up and say, this is our house, and God has given it to us and to use everything that God has given us to rescue our children, to rescue our teenagers, to rescue our schools, to rescue our homes. God has called us as the church to stand up and to make more and better disciples so that lives are changed and transformed by the blood of Jesus. And God has given us all that we need. So what are we waiting for?